Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. Today on the podcast, we're going to get started with a bit of an update on how I'm doing these days, having broken my neck this past July in a pretty bad backcountry skiing accident. And then, in keeping with the topic of backcountry safety and wilderness medicine, we're talking with Blister reviewer Paul Forward about some of Paul's best advice about backcountry and wilderness travel, and this is info that's relevant for skiers, snowboarders, hikers, mountain bikers, boaters, or in other words, you. In our conversation, Paul talks about what you should know before heading into the backcountry, and then we discuss what items you should be carrying with you when traveling in the backcountry and in wilderness areas. Paul happens to be a pretty good person to have talking about these topics. He lives in Alaska, where he's a lead heli guide for Chugach Powder Guides. He's also a family medicine boarded physician who works in rural Alaska currently working in the Arctic village of Kotzebue, and he's also worked in other parts of the state, including Kodiak, doing emergency and hospital medicine. He's also a medical director for an Alaskan-based group of AMGA guides, and he is an advanced wilderness life support instructor and the only person offering these AWLS courses in Alaska. And beyond all that, Paul spends a lot of time in the backcountry, skiing, mountain biking, kayaking, pack rafting, and bow hunting. In short, Paul speaks with quite a bit of experience on these topics, so I think it's smart for all of us to pay attention to what he has to say. And as we discuss at the end of our conversation, Paul is teaching an advanced wilderness life support course this coming February in Girdwood, Alaska, in conjunction with Chugach Powder Guides. So if you're interested in taking an AWS course and like the sound of doing it with Paul while also getting in some heli skiing and gaining some familiarity with helis and heli evacuations, listen up. Finally, in the show notes to this podcast episode, Paul has written a companion piece to our conversation, so check that out for more information on a number of the topics we cover here. Now let's get to my conversation with Paul about what you should know before you head into the backcountry and what you should be carrying with you when traveling in the backcountry and in wilderness areas. Hey, Paul, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm good, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. Um, what are you up to? Are you currently back in Girdwood? I am I'm at my house in Girdwood. I just got home from Kotzebue a day ago. Tell me what you were up to in Kotzebue. I work up there as a physician. I was mostly doing ER shifts and hospitalist work this last time up there. Okay, cool. So we wanted to today, I mean, cover a number of things, all of them uh, related to backcountry and wilderness safety and medicine. And just to kind of get the ball rolling, um, I wanted to give, you know, at least a bit of an update Um on my own situation, as some of you may have heard about this, you know, this summer I was involved in a pretty serious um, backcountry skiing accident. In July, uh, we recorded a couple podcasts about this event. I think it was episode number forty-seven and forty-eight. Um, but just to give you guys a, a little bit of an update on where I'm at, um, we I'm happy to report I had a successful surgery on. July 20th. Um, 
and where I had some hardware installed in my neck. It's pretty nice. They kind of slit your throat open um, right at the base of your neck and then pretty elegantly go in and install a plate and four screws uh, that are now permanently, they'll be in there forever, um, attached to my C6 and C7 vertebrae. Um, that procedure went well, had kind of the standard recovery you know, stuff since then. And I, on October 18th, I remember I went back for another checkup with the surgeon. And at that point, I had told him, um, initially he had said, you know, prior to the surgery, he's like, you know, if this surgery goes well, it's great. You're going to be bulletproof and back to skiing in 12 months. And that meant, you know, July, 2018. And when I heard that, I was like, no, uh, I don't, I don't imagine waiting till July. Um, but long and short, when I saw and met with him on the 18th of October, I sort of informed him, I said, um, look, I'm skiing in February, this February. And I, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, but let's think about what we need to do to get me ready to be skiing in February. And he didn't exactly love the sound of that, but you know, we talked. But the good news is I then had x-rays shortly thereafter. And I'm happy to report that when the surgeon read those x-rays, he said, I thought you would heal pretty quickly, but you are healing quicker than I expected. And we're seeing a good rigidity in the vertebrae that I had wanted to see. Um, and he said, basically, like, I'm feeling way, way better about you skiing in February and possibly even sooner. So I'm super happy to report that, super grateful. And um, uh, anyway, that's kind of the latest on on that. Um, that's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know... Again, um, I think for as severe as that accident was, um, it's hard to imagine there being a much better result at this point. So there, you know, there we go. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really, really good to hear. Stoked to see you out there. Yeah. And Paul, you had sent, you know, a really nice, pretty long email to me after the event. And I think it was after you had kind of listened to those two podcasts that we recorded. And um, it meant a lot because, you know, honestly, I didn't know if anybody was how useful or helpful those conversations were going to be. But all we had tried to do was just detail kind of exactly what happened. And um, it was nice hearing from you that you thought that that, you know, we got to hear from a number of Blister listeners as well that some of those people found it useful and, you know, people were just saying, like, I think this is going to change my own approach when I'm out in the backcountry. Um, but that's really what we want to do here now is, Paul, you know, take advantage of some of your expertise and experience and, um, you know, just address this question of it's, it is the season, you know, we are you know, more people are touring now and getting out in the backcountry into wilderness areas. And um, we want to use this time to make sure we're kind of shoring up things maybe we already know, uh, or maybe being able to put into practice some things that you might be sharing with us today. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think it's pretty timely right now as we're all getting really excited to get outside and uh, into the mountains. And, you know, a lot of parts of the country, avalanche conditions aren't um, super favorable, like here in Alaska yeah. right now. Yeah. And I mean, this stuff is real. I mean, we have 
already this season. Um, we have seen, you know, deaths in the community of some beloved members. Um, and this is very real, very serious stuff. And so I think as all of us, there should be an imperative to be as prepared as possible to mitigate um, to mitigate some of the unavoidable stuff that we're going to experience and encounter in the backcountry. And um, again, I'm super grateful for the friends who were with me uh, the day in July uh, when I kind of experienced my own ride. And um, again, I'm looking forward here to having you share some stuff, Paul, um, you know, from your own perspective. So to that end, I wanted to just kind of start with um, before anybody is even going out um, and heading out, what are some of the things you think those people should have either read or studied or certifications that they should have gotten? What would you say to people on a general level about that? Well, uh, some people may be familiar with a friend of mine, Doug Krause, and his podcast, which is um, Slide, the Avalanche podcast. And he, in one of his earliest podcasts, he said that you, sh you basically you shouldn't be out in the backcountry if you haven't done your Avalanche one at least. And if you don't have at least a wilderness first aid or some type of basic first aid certification, and it's a strong statement, but I think I think it's probably justifiable. I think people should, if they're going to be out there, and I would say not just for winter sports like skiing and snowboarding in the backcountry, but also all of us that are out there mountain biking and hunting and fishing and hiking and whitewater paddling and sea kayaking. You know, the skills are valuable. They're they're translatable and. Uh, you know, I've known people who are really well prepared and encounter bad situations in the wilderness. I know people who have been less well prepared from an education standpoint. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard. It's really hard for people to look back and say, oh, man, I wish I'd done that in retrospect. And so I think, you know, for, for our own safe and our own safety and for those of the people that we travel with, I think it's worth at least doing a basic wilderness first aid course. Okay. Um, and, and then, as, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, as far as books and references, you know, it's just like avalanche courses. You can buy all the avalanche books and there's a lot of value in reading them and, and, take, and learning from them. But I think, you know, the hands-on stuff and actually taking a course from an experienced practitioner is, is a lot better. Um, that said, you know, the textbooks for most of the certifications themselves, like the Wilderness First Responder textbook or the Wilderness First Aid textbook for starters, um, are, are great places to start. Um, I don't know. And if any of the listeners out there have good ideas on, um, you know, easy reading, you know, interesting kind of like the, um, the snow sense equivalent of, uh, wilderness first aid text has an idea, please send it our way on the, in responses to this show. But, um, you know, the, the, the kind of standalone textbook that I'm most well aware of is, is Auerbach. And uh, that's that's like a textbook. You know, it's great for reference, but it's not something that you would sit down and, and read or read before you go to bed to pick up some interesting tips, in my in my opinion. Um, so, uh, yeah, not, not a ton of great just like easy reading out there on the topic that I know of. Okay. But again, we will have um, like accompanying in the, in the show notes to this episode, um, we're going to have a list of some of the things that we're talking about uh, here. Um, just to give people kind of a, an initial reference point or so that people can go back and see some of the things that you're going to be referencing in this conversation. 
Sounds good. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you want to move on then to specific items that you think people ought to be carrying with them? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like before we start talking about first aid kits, which is always a hot topic in these courses and, and conversations, is kind of backing up and even referencing your your accident as communication devices. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot more options out there these days. There are a lot more affordable satellite options that I think it's worth just touching on it a little bit. And, you know, the first thing that I think we've talked about before and that has been getting a fair amount of attention in the last couple of years is just simple two-way radios. Um, just having, you know, they don't have to be backcountry ski specific models. You can pick up Motorola's for relatively cheap or any equivalent, you know, consumer grade, um, Motorola's. Obviously, if you're living outside the United States, be aware of whatever regulations your country has and within the United States for different bandwidths and power radios, you don't want to interfere with, um, other frequencies that are out there. But for the most part, they're an awesome resource just for everyday backcountry skiing, and I personally feel like there's not a good excuse to basically to, for people not to have them with them on every backcountry ski tour. And I've made it part of my kit. I put Beacon Probe, Shovel Probe in my pack and I strap on the radio and make sure the batteries are good. And I do that for single run tours with my friends and I do it for extended backcountry trips. Um, maybe not so much on like multi-week traverses because battery issues are a concern, but I just think they're so valuable for getting information about the run from people. If, if somebody goes out of sight or you're skiing in an area where there's trees and you can't see your group all the time, they're just invaluable. They save a ton of time and they could, you know, in a situation where somebody's not breathing, they can make a huge difference in far, as far as like the overall outcome. If you can quickly reach all the members of your group and figure out who's doing what and where everybody is. And I, I think even in your scenario, you know, had there been, uh, had you guys had radios, it might have made things a little bit easier um, for, for your overall group. And, and you could speak to that. But I, I, listening to your story and talking to you about it, I think that, you know, in retrospect, it might have been a, a good resource for you guys. Yep, I think that's fair. So you kind of said, you know, I think it's a, an important and useful thing to say, like, hey, look, pretty much any two-way radio will do. But do you have one or two um, even if it's not like this, you know, without saying this is the single best two-way radio, do you care to make any specific recommendation or like I've used these, they've worked fine? Yeah, sure. So I've used a ton of different types of them because as a ski guide, you know, we, we, we use like big professional VHF radios that we use to communicate with the helicopter and each other. And those are awesome. And we can set them up with a remote, you know, solar powered repeaters and they have amazing bandwidth and, and they work great. But, um, for consumer use for like general everyday use, I've used everything from like the, you know, $15, $10 a piece, uh, radios that come in like the bubble pack from REI mm -hmm. all the way up to, um, I guess probably the most expensive ones I've used are probably those, the backcountry access ones, which I have a couple um, currently. And I've also had quite a bit of experience with, um, there's a company called Baofang that makes these radios in China. And they're, they're cool because they're relatively powerful. They're easily, well, I wouldn't say easily, but they're programmable with a little bit of time spent on the computer. So you can program any frequencies you want. Hmm. Um, and they have all kinds of accessories and they're, they're pretty cheap. You can put bigger antennas, bigger batteries on them. Um, the problem is with those there, they seem to me like the quality control isn't great. And so you can have one that's works great and you can have some where they get a little, little irregular in their functioning. Um, to me, the big benefit of the BCA ones is 
that I haven't found in any other radio that I've used is that the mic, the or like lapel mic or, or mic that you can strap on your, your pack strap or your jacket has the on off and the frequency toggle on it, which I kind of like because I like to stash the radio in a warm, safe place in my backpack and then pull the mic out and put it on my strap. And then and being able to turn it on and off, like if you're in a group of people and you're skinning up the ridge, you don't need to have it on necessarily. And as soon as people start dropping in, it's easy just to click it to on. Everybody clicks to on. And then, you know, the per first person gets to the bottom. You can talk to them and you all regroup and you turn them off again and it saves batteries. You can switch between frequencies really easily if you're out in a busy place and you find somebody else's on your family radio band channel. And so, um, you know, they're expensive. Um, but the BCA ones do have some advantages and they, and so far I've had pretty good reliability with them. Um, and I'll hmm. just say one other thing about radio use. Um, I think a lot of people, and I know I've done this when you have radio, especially the less expensive ones, but even the really good ones and you feel like you're not getting a good signal or you, you're looking at your buddy, your line of sight, they're only a mile away. You see them and they're not hearing you and you're like, all oh, these things are crap. They're supposed to be 25 miles and I can't even work it half mile away to my buddy I can see take it out of your pocket or out of your pack hold it up in the air get it away from your body mass and it'll dramatically increase the um your signal and that goes with like cheap radios and expensive radios so if you can't hear somebody or you're looking for a signal from your friend you can't hear get that radio out of your pocket and hold it up in the air as much as you can and obviously getting to a high point is good but it'll, you'll be surprised how much difference that makes cool um, and one other thing about radios, I know I'm going on about them, but it's a passion topic for me, is, yeah. um, is you know, any a, anything you have on your body that's that's producing an electromagnetic signal could theoretically interfere with your avalanche beacon. Now, I don't – that I'm personally aware of, I don't know of a lot of information or, or studies that have looked at the particular interference from two-way radios, especially like the consumer ones. But I personally make a habit of keeping them – as far as it's practical from my beacon. Um, mm -hmm. And again, theoretical, I don't have any data. Maybe there's probably data, some data out there somewhere. Um, I don't have it, but I try as hard as I can to keep, just like I do with my phone, I try to keep those things far away from my beacon as is, as is practical. Mm -hmm. So what's your, I mean, so let's talk about that. On a given day, where's your phone? Where's your beacon? Where's your two-way radio? Yep. So, um, my beacon's usually, usually in my pocket. Um, sometimes for ski touring, I'll wear it on the, on its harness that it comes with. So it'll be like on my, you know, left lower abdomen. Yeah. But let's yep. pause on that. Cause I mean, this has been a thing for a while, right? Like when people kind of first started wearing beacons in a pocket, you know, or on a pair of pants or something like that, there was some people that were pretty not psyched on that practice. Do you know, do we do we care about this now? You yeah, know? and I think it's almost a whole other conversation, like you know, beacon function, beacon practices, yeah. beacon safety. There's it's a whole it's almost a whole podcast in itself, like a, yeah. a gear podcast. But um, yes, I mean, I know somebody who had her pants ripped off in an avalanche and had her beacon in her pocket, and the pants like hung onto her ankles, and you know, wow. she, and it, she wasn't buried, and it was okay, but you know, it's an issue. Like you could lose your beacon if it's in your pocket, if your pants get pulled off or if the pocket opens up and it rips out and avalanches are, you know, horribly violent. And yep. that's certainly possible. Um, you know, usually when I have my beacon in my pocket, it's when I'm also, it's when I'm working and, and I'm wearing a harness 
like a like a you know a climbing harness basically for for crevasse safety and um and so i feel that much more comfortable that i have like a harness on over top of my pants um but i do sometimes wear them over my pants when i'm just out touring although usually when i'm just out touring just for like uh, for a variety of reasons and comfort i usually have the beacon in its harness when i'm just out um you know walking for the day skinning for the day yeah okay um and then my my uh, radio depending on what i'm doing is either in a radio harness high on my chest or i actually prefer to have it in a in an outer coat pocket because uh with a mic again on my collar because that allows me to easily pull it out and hold it up in the air which gives me a much better uh, much better signal like i spoke about earlier yeah um, when i'm touring you know i don't worry about that as much uh, you know, I'm not using them as intensively. Um, so, like I said, I'll, when I'm touring, I'll often have it like shoved back, like in the water bottle pocket, with next to like my you know water bottle, which usually starts with warm water at the beginning of the day, so everything's kind of warm and the battery stays warm and the water stays, fr- you know, not frozen. And uh, and I have that all tucked together. And uh, and then, like I said, I've been using the BCA ones lately, so I, it's that much easier for me to turn it on and off because I just toggle it on or off on my shoulder strap, and then. My phone, um, you know, if it's an area where there's cell service, I'll have my phone someplace I can get to it pretty easily, as far away as possible. So, you know, whether it's a p- pocket on my hip or thigh or something is where it usually ends up. Um, and uh, and if not, I'll you you I you know if I'm not doing that, I'm not using it for the GPS. I'll typically just have it in airplane mode, just because you know just decreases the amount of signal that potentially could interfere with the beacon. And I encourage people to do that to, you know, your, your phone's a great camera. So it's, you know, if you need to have it on, have it on. But if you're not actively needing a signal either from a satellite or from a cell tower, turn it on airplane mode. It'll save the battery anyway. Yep. That's useful. Um, where do we go from here? Well, okay. So the next category, and we're still on communication devices, because I think this is like, you know, obviously if you're, if you experience like a truly bad or life limb eye threatening accident in the wilderness you know you're, no matter how skilled you are and how well equipped you are the person needs to get transferred to definitive care and you probably need more resources and so um i pretty much whether i'm on a whitewater kayaking trip or on a ski trip or a, a long mountain bike trip or you know anywhere that anytime in the wilderness especially all my long solo hunting trips that i go on every year I always have an inReach in my pocket. I think it's a great product. I have no affiliation with them at all. I've had them on. I've had several of them over the years. I think the newest one is is better than the previous one for a variety of reasons. But um, the inReach is awesome. You can text message from it. You can send like you know, essentially real time text messages, almost like you can on your phone, like like an SMS message. Um, and the inReach is a Delorm product. Delorm is on the Iridium network. And I spend a lot of time in the Arctic and, you know, northern regions of Alaska and Canada. Um, it works in the Arctic where Spot has had some um, some questionable performance over the years and I believe still does. Um, and I would say the same thing for satellite phones. If you're going to get a satellite phone and you think you might be operating in northern uh, latitudes, uh, get on the Iridium network. It's, a, it's everything I know and all the people that I know who are into this stuff are all pretty adamant that they use Iridium uh, network products and the inReach has that. Um, it also has an emergency uh, button where it basically just calls in the cavalry. It goes through a series of different um, networks, which it probably isn't worth talking about right now, but you know, eventually your local support services, rescue services will get um, 
will get notified. And of course, since it's a satellite device, it's not just broadcasting that you need help, but it's also broadcasting your GPS coordinates, making it much easier for any rescue resources to locate you. Um, so I think it's an awesome product. You know, it doesn't weigh that much. I keep it in my pocket or in my pack, depending on what I'm doing. And, uh, and it's also nice to just be able to get in touch with, you know, friends and family if you need to on a wilderness trip. Um, the, um, the inReach actually can also be used device to device in the wilderness. So you can actually uh, text friends with other inReaches when you're both in the wilderness, not connected to any other service. Um, there's, hmm. It takes a little bit of practice and a few things to figure out to be able to do that. But it, it actually works fairly well. The biggest limitation is, is that unlike your phone, which is buzzes or beeps in your pocket, the inReach has to query the satellite and you have to set it to do that. And it doesn't always query it if it's in your pocket close to your body. And so it's worth some time, some trial and error to kind of figure out how it works. But I think it's awesome. And I would recommend it personally much more than the spot products because I just think the range is much better and the versatility is better. And the cost is, is pretty good. Um, so I think the inReach is great. And I do have the Explore one, which comes with the GPS functioning. I think the maps that Garmin and DeLorme include for that are pretty subpar, honestly. But um, but it's a nice backup to whatever your primary GPS or map kind of program is for, for any given day. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Okay. I think that's a great product. And then satellite phones obviously are another, you know, another whole conversation in themselves. Hmm. But um, I think that's like obviously like the ultimate communication device to have in the wilderness. They're just um, kind of cost prohibitive and they are heavy and uh, compared to an inReach. But if you, if you have the means, I highly recommend picking one up. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Ferris Bueller. <laughs> yeah, they're great. I mean, they're awesome. They're, they work really, really well. But, and, and it's there, nothing can replace, you know, whether you're sitting on a glacier trying to explain to the pilot who's coming in the ski plane to pick you up, what the clouds are doing, or whether you're trying to explain what's going on with a, a, a victim of an accident on the scene, nothing can replace like real time voice to voice, you know, phone communication. Like it's just, it's just better. I mean it, but it's really expensive. What's the, what's just a rough ballpark for prices on a sat phone uh you know you can get used ones for less but i i think for for what you want for a good iridium sat phone um you're probably looking at around a thousand dollars you know give or take a couple give or take a couple hundred um and then you know that's like your initial cost but then the the plans for them are actually um as far as i know to my knowledge the plans are also very expensive like you, you should think about like another you know at least like two or three hundred bucks a year to have minutes available to you to use if you need an emergency and that's not you know enough that's not like you can just talk on it like it's your cell phone all the time that's right, like right. you know uh, you're using it when you have to uh, it's not yeah. a lot of minutes maybe that's like 100 minutes or something and, you know you can go to there's a couple different websites that offer them you can even get them on Amazon um, and you know we have like a local satellite phone store here in Anchorage that has really good service um, that can and you know the other thing about sat phones that I would mention a lot of places where there is a lot of you know, wilderness adventuring going on, have great rental services. And, you know, like in Anchorage, you can rent um, a sat phone, you know, with all the stuff that you need. And I can't remember the number of minutes, but, if, you know, adequate minutes for any trip, you know, maybe like $80 a week, which if you're going with a few friends, it's almost a no brainer if you're going to be really out there to, to get that. Um, 
especially if you don't already have an inReach or something, which inReach is, you know, around three hundred to four hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And then the bait, the the cheapest kind of emergency bare bones plan that you can get for them are around maybe ten or eleven dollars a month on up to fifty or sixty for unlimited messages. Okay. So still a lot less money than a satellite yep. phone. Yep. That's useful. Okay. What's um, next? Uh, well, I think for, for communications, that's, you know, that's pretty much it. Uh, I think those are like the main, the main options that are out there. Um, so, you know, whenever I, I do a course or I talk to friends about this or, or friends ask me about this, you know, first aid kit contents are always a hot topic. And yeah. I think most people probably are carrying some kind of first aid kit. Um, I carry a pretty minimalistic one personally. I, you know, I typically depend, it depends on whether I'm doing a trip uh, in the professional capacity, like as a guide or whether I'm doing a trip with, you know, with my, by myself, which is often the case or with friends. And then, you know, obviously what kind of things we're doing and how long we're going to be out there plays into it. Um, but I think most people have like the basic ideas of, you know, some stuff to dress wounds and stop bleeding. And, and I, um, I don't think I need to get in too much detail on that stuff. Um, if there's questions we can, you know, from, from you or if people, you know, write in questions, I'm happy to address them. Um, but I was thinking about mentioning just a couple of things that I feel like don't get maybe as much, don't get included as often. And some of this is predicated on, on some training. But, um, when I think about what I carry in my kit, I carry about, I think about, first of all, about what I'm likely to use. So likely to use, obviously people cut themselves, especially like hunting and fishing and stuff when you have edges and blades, but same, same out with skiing, you know, you fall down and cut yourself. It's nice to have something besides tearing off the sleeve of your shirt to, you know, to <laughs> wrap up some bleeding or something. Yeah. Um, not, not essential, but you know, you can, you can make do, everybody's got extra clothes and stuff, not, not critical stuff to have. Um, but I think also think about, so that's what I think like the common stuff. And then I think about what are the things that if I, if I don't have with me that could make the difference between uh, somebody basically like living or not living. Right. And, um, and to me though, to me, basically when I'm talking about that, I'm thinking about, um, ways to protect somebody's airway and, the caveat here is that if you're talking about like airway protection or compromised airway in the wilderness, the unfortunate reality is like the, you know, the outcomes are, are not, you know, the statistics are not in your favor if you're worried about those things. If somebody's hurt that bad in the wilderness, you know, outcomes aren't, aren't often very good. But there have been scenarios where people have compromised airways in the wilderness that could be protected by a simple lightweight device like an oral airway or a nasal airway. And I do carry those on a pretty regular basis. And again, these are things that require training. Um, you know, it's not something you just buy at REI or online and just throw in your pack. Um, it's something you need to know how to use and understand how to, how to fit, how to size and understand when it's useful. But you also don't have to be a physician to, to learn those things. You know, those are things you can learn in, um, uh, low, you know, uh, other types of first responder type courses. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, that's fine. I think it's, uh, consider that another reason to get some wilderness medicine training Yeah. and and learn about these things and learn about their placement. Um, but I think, I think they're valid things to know how to use. And I think, 
you know, there's probably there's probably enough scenarios out there to justify the the few ounces it would take in one person's pack to have those things available, depending on the kind of trip. Um, just a personal thing, but I, I definitely include them in my professional work when I'm when I'm guiding. I always have them. Um, and then, like totally changing gears from that, uh, the other thing that people frequently ask me about is what medications or drugs they should be taking with them. And again, this is probably like, you know, a whole hour long conversation in itself. But I kind of, again, go back to the, what things are common and what things are going to potentially make a really big difference either in somebody's comfort or ultimately somebody's like, you know, survival. And so, um, to me, the common stuff is, you know, it's always nice to have some naproxen or ibuprofen or acetaminophen for basic pain, you know, control. You know, somebody, you're on a long trip, people, you know, get sore, tired, banged up. I think those drugs are, are good to have. And I, I usually have them with me. It, just a few pills, you know, you don't need a lot. But, and then, uh, you know, in my, I, I do often carry uh, some aspirin, which, Again, this is a, another kind of higher level medical training thing, but, and I think that the evidence to support this would probably be pretty low in a wilderness setting, but I would, if I encountered somebody that I thought was having heart attack pain or a stroke, uh, especially heart attack pain, let's, let's keep stroke out of this for right now. Um, I would say I would probably give them an aspirin and I don't know if it would make a difference, but I might feel better about it in the end. Um, and then, uh, I, Allergy type medications, you know, uh, anaphylaxis, which can be a life-threatening reaction to something that someone's allergic to. Uh, it's always nice to have diphenhydramine, which is also called with brand name Benadryl, basically, is a is a good thing to have. Also, you know, if you're if you're stuck in a snow cave and it's or a, or a really windy tent, it helps you sleep a little bit. <laughs> I've used it for that. That's the, actually the only reason I've used diphenhydramine in the wilderness thus far, <laughs> but. <laughs> can help make the night a little little better um but uh and then people ask me all the time about epipens um because in theory an epipen could save somebody's life right i mean epi, an epipen is a um a small uh basically auto injector that uh which means it's like a, a all enclosed device that includes the medicine which is in a liquid form the needle and the um, the ability to like basically jam that into somebody's thigh and inject a small dose of epinephrine, um, which is what you need if you have swelling airways or you can't breathe. It can it could, it could save somebody's life. Um, I'd say a couple things about epipens. One, they're crazy expensive, um, and there's all kinds of stuff in the news about why that is. I'm not going to get into it, but they're recently a lot more expensive. Um, you can make your own kit. Which I would recommend for people who are doing that, who are considering carrying these medicines with um, your own syringes and your own uh, little ampules. And um, I'm not going to get into how to do that on this podcast, but it is something that's practical and it's easy to do, and it's way cheaper. Um, and again, this is a prescription medication, so you're going to have to get it provided to you by a by a healthcare provider with prescription privileges. Um, you whether you do your own or whether you buy an EpiPen. Um, but the other thing that people don't often talk about with EpiPens is that the manufacturer anyway recommends a very narrow temperature range in which the medication uh, must be stored. 
to be able to be uh, usable. And, and that means not just how the temperature it's at when you use it, when you inject it, but the temperature that it needs to be stored at for the medicine to be considered uh, preserved, basically. And that temperature range is far, from the manufacturer is, to the best of my knowledge, is about uh, 60 degrees Fahrenheit to about 85 or 86 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 to 30 Celsius. And, you know, quick thought about that. Most of us probably don't have the contents of our backpack staying between 60 and 85 degrees Fahrenheit when we're out ski touring. Or for those of us who live in Alaska probably don't have our backpacks at that temperature for about nine months per year or more. Yeah. And so, you know, it doesn't mean it's not going to work, but it, it might mean it won't work as well. And so it's definitely something to think about when you're considering carrying those medicines. And, and obviously, if you've had it in your pack and you're on an overnight trip and it freezes, um, I don't have any personal uh, – I'm not going to make a statement about that personally. But I'm pretty confident the manufacturer would tell you to throw it away and not use it. So it's something to think about. Um, but there are circumstances in the wilderness, especially like in a guided trip kind of scenario, or obviously if you have somebody who has history of anaphylaxis to things they might be exposed to, whether it's accidentally getting peanuts in the trail mix or getting stung by a bee, uh, where you could save somebody's life having that medicine. So it's, it's, something, it's a, something to think about, but there's some important caveats to EpiPens. Um, yeah. And then uh, the, the last category of medicines that I think is worth talking about just a little bit is um, opiates. And uh, to, for me, that's one of the few medicines. And again, I'm a physician and I, I understand the, the dangers and limitations of these medications. Um, but those medicines uh, definitely not uh, just a few doses of that find their way into my very basic first aid kit that I carry from time to time because the most common things that really requires some work that I've encountered are things like blown knees or um, like a friend of mine was involved in, uh, in helping a guy get out uh, recently or within the last couple of years with a um, femur fracture, you know, those medicines in, in any kind of like significant trauma, orthopedic injury. Um, if you, if you have a, a, you know, a decent understanding of, of when it's appropriate to use them and their safety profile can make a real difference for the person in comfort. And, uh, you know, I think it's worth, depending on what kind of trip you're doing, it's worth talking to your healthcare provider when you're getting prescriptions for your first aid kit um, to consider talking to him or her about that just to see what their take is and whether it's appropriate for you to carry them and you have an adequate understanding of how to use them, at least, at least for yourself, at least having it your own if you need them. And I think it's, it's definitely worth some consideration because they do work and, you know, not even going to touch the massive opiate epidemic that's going on in our country right now and all the horrible things about those medicines. But they're, I think they do have a place in, um, in wilderness medicine, even in like, you know, everyday users, first aid kits, potentially, potentially for, for those who understand them. Um, okay. So, uh, moving on from there, uh, you know, we've talked about first aid kits, um, we talked about how we're going to call in the rescue resources. Um, I think then also at least considering how we're going to get ourselves out or get our buddies out if we're in a situation where we can't get out on our own, right? And so there's some cool products out there that 
can turn your skis and shovels and poles into um, rescue sleds. And then um, there's some like kind of more kind of guide oriented products like that are, you know, basically like a rescue sled in themselves that you can carry and roll up in your pack. And uh, I don't think it's worth like really going into too much detail about those different products. But I only bring this up because I think when you're going out on a ski tour, it's worth thinking about at least having going through the mental exercise of, you know, I go ski touring, whatever it's every weekend or every day or whatever. And if, you know, one of these days, one of my buddies blows his knee or her knee and we don't need a helicopter and we don't, you know, we don't need the rescue team to come and get her. There's four of us and we can, we can get him or her out. How are you going to do that in a way that, you know, is comfortable, reasonably comfortable for that person and not going to make that person a lot worse. And, uh, and I think it's worth just looking at your gear, thinking of what you have. If you do have, you know, one of those K2, um, BCA type shovels that has, that you can help use to turn your skis into a sled. That's great, but make sure you put it, set it up before you, you know, go out there. Um, you know, do your skis need to have holes in the tips? Um, you know, these are questions you should think about answering before you go out there and, and how you're going to get somebody out. And, you know, and there's not a right answer here. It's not like this is the product you should carry. It's mostly something like, you know, consider what you have and how you're going to use it and what, how you would do it. And I think it's worth for every one of us that's out there to at least, you know, at least go through the mental exercise or have that conversation with our trip partners. Um, because the stuff that does happen, you know, it happens every year up here in our local areas that people, you know, have to, you know, evacuate their friends with non-life-threatening injuries. And, um, you know, we get creative and there's things you can do, but it's worth just thinking about how, how, what you're going to do and what you're going to use. And if you haven't ever tried to move somebody through deep snow who's hurt, you should you should try it because it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Hmm. Um, and I've, I've had it done in a few different real life scenarios and I've done it in a few um, mock scenario or quite a few mock scenarios. And um, there's, there's some, some good ways to do it and some bad ways to do it. And it's worth someday when you're, you know, on a high avalanche hazard day, when you're kick, kicking around the low elevations to see how well you can move your buddy, you know, a hundred yards. <laughs> if, if, if he can't use his, uh, his skis and bindings and legs to, to get himself out of there. So, yeah. um, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. And I'll just leave one little morsel of a tip that I think is pretty funny or pretty interesting. Um, I know a, some, a really experienced heli guide who's dragged um, a number of people down mountains by basically, um, uh, having them basically sit on the slope facing uphill. And we're usually talking about a lower extremity injury and looping the pull his, pull straps through their like you know that safety loop like that grab loop on the top of a backpack so yeah. they like they like you know buckle into their backpack usually they have airbag packs so they're like all you know looped in they have a crotch strap or a harness on and then just like basically dragging them back first you know head first kind of well, well he's skiing in front he's holding on to the poles and he just drags them straight down behind him and if the slope's steep enough i've actually done it um it it actually works remarkably well and you think about it you're you know, you're, the extremities uphill, you're like pulling straight, you know, you're like you're pulling in line with any lower extremity injury. Um, and people who, people I know who've been hurt pretty bad, a friend of mine got hurt pretty bad, um, uh, a year or so ago in Chile and, and, and got dragged down the mountain this way, uh, with a really bad knee injury and leg fracture. And he said it was surprisingly comfortable and he got dragged, you know, a couple thousand feet down a big mountain in the Andes like that. So 
kind of a cool little tip to something to think about, but practice it first. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, and then the last thing, and this again is going to be like group and trip dependent, but just give a little bit of thought while you're thinking about how you might get your buddy out of the wilderness uh, who can't walk. You might give a little bit of thought to what type of emergency shelter and supplies that you're going to carry with you. And again, depends on the trip, but this could be anything from the tent that you're already carrying because you're on a multi-day trip to a four ounce uh, survival blanket. But, uh, you know, if you've ever had an injury or been stuck with somebody in the field with an injury, especially in the winter, uh, it's remarkable how fast the adrenaline and the sweat wears off and people start getting cold. And so, you know, having an extra puffy and having, you know, something to break the wind or make a little shelter, um, is I think a good idea. And, you know, depending on your trip, you can talk about, or your, your role in the trip, whether you should have ways to make water, you know, a little candle and a super light little can or a pot or something so you can make water, um, or some extra emergency rations or something, but it's just worth thinking about and it's worth playing with a little bit. And it's, it's fun to go, you know, if you've never done it, it's fun to go dig a snow cave and, and see how it would go and what you do. I mean, it's, it's a worthwhile skill for anybody to learn. Um, so I think it's, yeah. So, so those are the, you know, as far as like stuff, I think, yeah. um, you know, obviously just like with avalanche avoidance and education, the most important tool you have is, is your knowledge and experience and education. Um, the tools are all just like a supplement to that, right? The equipment that you bring. But, and so that going back to your point, Jonathan, about, uh, I think our obligation as backcountry travelers to, to ourselves and to our partners to have some basic wilderness medicine education, um, is really, is a really important obligation. Um, and is like paramount It's like the number one and most important tool you can bring is that education. Um, and that's kind of a segue into the different types of wilderness education that are out there. Yeah. And so, uh, this isn't going to be all inclusive, but, uh, kind of a basic breakdown of it are, uh, wilderness first aid courses, which are usually one to two day, usually kind of two day classes that are, you know, fairly comprehensive and, uh, you know, cover, you know, a good bit of information about things that you should, should or shouldn't do in the context of a wilderness, you know, medicine accident, emergency injury. Um, so, and there's also, um, you know, there's variations on that, but the, I think wilderness first aid WFA is probably at least to my knowledge, the most kind of established and available one, especially in the Western states, um, to take. I'm not sure if there's different ones in the Eastern states or not, but I know some of the groups that sponsor these are like based out of Utah. And, um, there's usually courses throughout. I know there's like some, uh, some ones that are being marketed to mountain bikers in, in other states. Um, the avalanche school up here is, is, um, planning to get more involved in this type of education. Um, so I think that's a real great place to start, um, that like anybody can take. Um, and then, uh, if you're really into it or you, um, you spend a lot of time in the backcountry, a lot of time in the wilderness, or you're going to be doing in any type of capacity where you're responsible for other people in the wilderness, um, the wilderness first responder, or, you know, it gets called a woofer often 
is yeah. is a really great curriculum. I mean, it's long. You have to, you're going to need to dedicate. You know, I'm, I think they're around, you know, three to five days, possibly longer, depending on who you take it through and how you do it. Maybe shorter if there's an online, you know, supplement to it. But um, it's a really good curriculum. Um, I've I've read through the textbooks. I I, uh, I took it myself when I you know long before I went to med school or anything else. Um, just you know, I, almost twenty years ago just because I thought it was going to be something important to me. And I was working as a guide in wilderness, Alaska in various capacities. Um, and I think it's great. It's, well, oh, WFR is a wonderful, wonderful thing to have done. And, and, you know, with any of these, you take it once and it's like anything, especially in these things where you don't use that much, hopefully <laughs> you're not using these skills that much. Um, right. You should, you should do your research and refreshers. It's really worthwhile to, to do that. And if you're working for a company, uh, they're going to require you to do that anyway to maintain your certification. But, um, you know, did a woofer 10 years ago, it's probably worth th- – things have changed actually too in some of the recommendations and some, sometimes in important ways. Um, it's worth getting a recert or taking a new course or at least doing a refresher. Um, and then uh, there's also uh, basic wilderness life support, which is pretty comparable to a woofer, I think, in, in, in what it's covered, it, what's covered in those. Uh, it's similar length offered by different organizations. Um, and then the course that uh, we'll talk about a little bit more that I've been involved in teaching since last year is um, the Advanced Wilderness Life Support. And Advanced Wilderness Life Support is a course that is designed to be taken by people with um, a higher level of medical training. So that includes uh, EMTs, paramedics, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and then physicians, MDDOs, and obviously, you know, dentists and other types of healthcare professionals with some uh, basic understanding of, of medicine uh, are, are the target of that course. And, uh, and it basically build, it assumes coming in that you have a basic understanding of, of medical care. And then it gears, uh, uh, it's a course that's, that's it's usually a three-day course. Um, it's about 22 hours of, of coursework. And it really dives into the particulars of various aspects of wilderness medicine. It starts with like basic survey and, and then goes through, uh, you know, altitude medicine and dive medicine and lightning related injuries and all the different things that somebody might encounter. Uh, we don't get really into tropical medicine, especially in the courses we do here in Alaska, but uh, it ba- basically covers, um, you know, a pretty fairly comprehensive 22 hours of uh, kind of advanced wilderness medicine curriculum. And it's real interactive. And usually we learn a lot from each other because everybody has been involved in healthcare and brings something to the table. And that's true of like, you know, sometimes we learn a ton from the, the people that are like paramedics and they have a lot more in the field pre-hospital care experience than the, the physician. So it's a really collegial, like cool learning environment. I've really enjoyed being involved in it. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of, I think, like the upper echelon. There's a few other kind of like fellowship type things. Um, there's a, you know, I don't, this probably isn't the place for that, but there's like other, you know, even more extended wilderness medicine education processes out there. But I think, you know, from like a readily available type of coursework, these are kind of the, the main, the main courses that are out there. And I think they're all really good. Interesting. That's a great, great rundown. Um, and so I'd like to have you talk a bit more specifically about um, you are leading this course um, 
coming up in February, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, February 12th through the 16th in, uh, in Girdwood um, through Chugach Powder Guides, which is the Heliski company I work for. Uh, we're kind of doing a combination uh, advanced wilderness life support certification that will have uh, about 20 to 21 hours of certified um, continuing medical education or CME for physicians um, uh, in combination with uh, heli skiing during that week. And uh, you, the, the details of the course are at Chugach Powder Guides and at awls.org. Um, but basically, the way we figure it, it'll, it's probably the, uh, you know, enough heli time for about two, like two good days of heli skiing, which we can stretch out over the week depending on weather or, you know, other things. Um, and then about three days worth of courseworks over that five-day period. And we have our own private helicopter chartered for that time period. So we have a ton of flexibility in how we utilize our helicopter hours as far as, you know, we had a nice weather window in the morning one day. We just, you know, cancel class and go heli skiing. And if it's yeah. really good, we stay heli skiing. And uh, and then if the weather comes in or we've done all our skiing, um, you know, we've eventually got to do the coursework. But um, it's a nice combination of being out there, you know, actually out there in the mountains and uh, having a good time with you know, with our friends. And then uh, also, you know, buckling down and, and doing some what I think is really interesting. Like, I've really enjoyed AWS. I think it's it's interesting. It's fun. It's refreshing. Um, kind of medical information. And uh, I, I think it'll be a cool combination. Hmm. And so just to be clear, I mean, the, the AWLS material that you would be addressing in this course in February, this would be, it, the curriculum would look similar to what someone might get in, um, in a different AWLS course, or are you planning to sort of incorporate the heli time into the instruction time, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, great question. So, there are certain things that we have to cover the AWS curriculum for it to be an AWS um, certified or approved course. We have to co cover their curriculum. So, there. So that like baseline twenty hours of curriculum is like set. And if you take AWS, you take it yep. in Brazil, or you take it in Chamonix this winter, or you take it in Girdwood heli skiing. You're going to get like the same, the, you know, we're required to basically impart the same package of information. Now, as an AWS instructor running a course, you have some liberty to add things in and to tailor it to, to your environment. And so um, uh, what we're going to do, and I, I, my, the person who's teaching it with me is named Jamie Anderson. Um, so a lot of people may recognize his name in Alaska from the avalanche world. Um, Jamie is a paramedic in the Anchorage Fire Department. He's super experienced. He's uh, worked extensively on uh, on Denali and uh, uh, high elevation type. Uh, that's that's the tallest mountain in Alaska. For those who don't know, um, big mountaineering objective. He's been involved in some pretty high profile um, rescue operations there, um, as well as his you know experience as a paramedic. And then he's also very involved in the avalanche education world and uh, both in Alaska and out of state. And so. Um, Jamie and I will work on uh, at augmenting the course, both with a little bit more in-depth um, conversation about uh, avalanche-related uh, injuries and um, uh, hypoxia, and and how to how to deal with those um, based on our our experience, you know, working in this this world kind of professionally, uh, and some of the some of the latest information that's out there about how to treat avalanche victims. Um, 
we're both pretty excited about, uh, you know, learning more and, and, and talking more about that. And then also, uh, some of the things that we found in our, in our last course, people were really interested in was, uh, just how it works when you call 911 or you activate your inReach or spot or, um, you know, you activate a rescue in some way, like what actually happens and how it works. And, um, one of the things that, um, I find really interesting is, uh, you know, having a basic understanding of how helicopters work and operate and what they're capable of and what they're not. And yeah. if you're out there and you are going to get a helicopter rescue, knowing, you know, knowing a few basic things about where a helicopter can land and how to be safe around them. And, uh, I think those things, people found that really, really interesting and rewarding in our last course. And, and so we're going to kind of build on that and talk about that a bit more. And we're going to have a helicopter right there in real time. And so, um, we can, uh, we can utilize that a little bit for the course as well. And I, I don't want to, uh, burn up too much heli time doing scenarios out there. But I, I think there's a way that we can do some of it out there in a very efficient way where we can still maximize our skiing and get a little yeah. bit of like on slope, you know, in, in the middle of the Chugach mountains, uh, education out there. And, and I can tell you from having done a bunch of, you know, helicopter turned on and fired up, you know, landing on you rescue scenarios. It yeah. is, even when you know it's a scenario and it's not real, like your heart's beating faster and you're, yeah. and you're like, it's, it's, it's a lot more intense when you're out there and there's a helicopter flying around your head. Um, and so it's, I think it's a good, uh, it's a good experience. So, so I, hopefully that answers your question. I think it's going to yeah. be, yeah. So I, I think it's gonna be really fun. I'm really excited about it. Jamie's really excited about it. I, I think it's going to be a really cool experience. So just to recap then, who is eligible to, take this course and where would they go to learn more about it and sign up? Um, so again, it's, um, uh, EMTs, paramedics, yep. nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, or PAs, um, MDDO, you know, physicians, uh, dentists, uh, that would be the, the, the core group. And, you know, I, potentially if somebody like really, really, really wanted to get involved in this, who didn't have any of those, uh, levels of training what was really really excited about doing it um we can kind of do like a, and they're willing to do a little bit of footwork ahead of time so they you know they kind of have a basic understanding of some of the things that we kind of assume people know uh we could kind of do it as like a a super uh, intense version of like a basic wilderness life support certification and uh, AWS is uh, when I talked to them about this is willing to grant a BWS certification to someone who would participate in it at that level and hmm. so if somebody really really wants to do the course and they're not a physician or say somebody's significant other really wants to take part in it but doesn't isn't a trained medical professional um, we can make that work and involve that person in the course I, I think you know, on a on a case by case basis. So like for sure, if somebody's interested in that, um, they should get in touch with me directly and we can, we can work it out. Hmm. Uh, and again, where are people going to learn more about this or sign up? Is it best to contact you directly? Uh, the best, well, the best way probably, uh, just because of my work, I'm kind of sometimes in and out of like cell phone service. Um, usually yeah. I have pretty ready access to the internet this time of year on cause I'm, I'm done with like all my extended hunting season. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, the best way to get to get involved in the course is to either go to um, awls.org, 
or um, go to the um, uh, Chugach Powder Guides uh, website, which is chugachpowderguides.com, and they'll find the uh, they'll find a link on that site to um, the course itself. Okay, and we'll we will include those links in the show notes to this episode as well, um, just to make it easy for people to find. Oh, perfect. Um, so, yeah. Well, good, man. Um, I think this is great. And I think, um, I don't know, it just feels to me like at the start of every single season, um, we need to have a conversation like this again and get people kind of oriented in the right mindset. And um, I think this has been super useful. And I think the course you're teaching sounds extremely cool. Um, so I'm looking forward to kind of hearing how that goes. And um, yeah, um, it's all it's all good stuff. And I mean, I'm I'm certainly proud and happy to you know call you friend and get to be somebody who gets to go spend some time in the mountains with you. And um, I certainly can attest um, anybody who wants to go get an AWS certification. Um, Paul's a great person to go do it. With. So, uh, I can't wait to hear how it all goes. Hey, thanks, man. Super nice of you to say. And, uh, you know, again, I'm so happy that you are going to be out shredding again this year. Cause it was, yeah. we were all <laughs> a little worried there for a while, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like to keep you guys on your toes. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm super grateful for how it's all gone so far and, um, and super excited to, to get out again myself. So, um, yeah, all good. And let's all let's all try to be smart and better educated and better prepared out there than we ever have been before. Yeah, good message. I think that's yeah. I think that's why stuff happens. And yeah. uh, no matter how no matter how good we are, um how how experienced we are, stuff happens and it's good to you know it's good to know all the different things to do when when it does. Yeah. Well, hey, man, thanks again. Good to talk. And um, we'll be talking again real soon, I'm sure. Hey, thanks so much, Jonathan. Thanks for the time. This was, this was really fun. Cool. All right. I'll talk to you later, man. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Paul Forward for the conversation. And be sure to check out Paul's write-up on the site that's a companion piece to this conversation. You can find it on the show notes to this podcast episode number 62. Thanks also to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob, and we will talk to you next week.